title of this message this morning is simply this, a prayer and a praise, a prayer and a praise. Our, our text this morning is simply just that. Uh, the first few verses are a prayer of Paul, and then he finishes in the last two verses with a beautiful statement of doxology, a statement of praise about his God. And so it is simply that this morning, a prayer and a praise that we will cover. And can you believe it? Here this morning, uh, we're going to finish out chapter number three, which puts us halfway through our series in Ephesians. Uh, it's, it's gone at least quick for me. You may say, man, it feels like it's gone forever. But, but for me, for me it's, it's gone quite quickly. And so I'm excited about continuing our way through this book of Ephesians. And here we have at the end of Ephesians, this section will mark a clear end to the doctrinal section, if we could call it that, of the letter uh, that Paul has written to the church at Ephesus. And then moving forward through chapter four and beyond, Paul will now focus more and more attention on the practical outworking of these doctrinal truths. And he will deploy a series of ethical exhortations, if you will, of the second half of Ephesians. And so I'd like to go backwards just a bit so that we can remember where we're at and where we're going. So if you'll remember back with me to chapter number one, I know that might be a, a lofty task to ask on a Sunday morning, but remember back with me to Ephesians chapter number one, you'll remember there that Paul, uh, there the second half of chapter one, he did what? He he prayed a prayer for the people at Ephesus who would be reading and hearing this letter. And here he is again in chapter number three, praying once again for this same group, the same church, a second time in just a few short chapters. Paul is praying very intimately and personally about some very specific things uh, for these uh, readers and hearers here at at Ephesus. And I don't know about you, but all the way through Paul's epistles, I just love what we learn about the heart of Paul and his prayers. Right? Don't you, don't you just love to see the heart of Paul in, in these prayers? We see a number of, of things as we observe these, these prayers, right? We see, first of all, Paul's theology in his prayers. We see what he believes about God, what he knows to be true about Christ and its implications on his lives and others' lives. So we see, certainly see Paul's theology. It, it comes alive in his prayers. I find it interesting uh, as I examine Paul's prayers about how little uh, my prayer life looks like the prayers of Paul in these epistles. Often when we come to the Lord in prayer, we come to God as if He were some genie in a bottle. We come to the Lord in our moment of desperation. When we need Him most, we will certainly lift up a prayer to the Lord for escape, for, for help, for relief, for healing. But on the day-to-day -day basis, how often do we come to the Lord to simply what praise his wonderful name to extol unto him the glory that is due unto him because he is God, he is creator, he is savior. And so what I love to see about Paul and his prayers is that he gets what prayer is about. It's about a relationship, not about what we can get from God. And so certainly I think we have much to learn from an individual basis as we look deep into this prayer of Paul to examine what do my prayers look like as I lift up 
my voice and my heart to the Lord? When and how often do I come to the Lord in prayer? So I think there's something to see here. Certainly we see his theology, but also don't we see Paul's pastoral heart even coming out here? Certainly Paul was a a missionary and a church planter uh, that we would most likely remember him as, but certainly Paul has the heart of a a pastor. He has a deep and personal and intimate love and relationship for the people at this church of Ephesus. He desires for them to grow in the Lord. He has this parental type relationship many times in these letters as he launches out into these prayers. And so we see the pastoral heart come alive in Paul's prayers. And certainly we see, finally, Paul's eternal perspective. While he's on this earth, while he's bound in this flesh, he has an eternal perspective of spiritual warfare, of running the race with endurance and patience to see the persevering work of the Lord come about in his life to keep on keeping on for the glory of God. This is Paul's eternal perspective that he has. We certainly see that come alive in these prayers. So again, if you'll remember back with me one more moment, two Sundays ago we covered the first portion of chapter 3 where Paul seemed to, again, introduce this prayer with that phrase, for this reason, he called that divine T.O. in his prayer and he launched out into some additional teaching that we covered last week, right? And in our ESV text here in verse 14, it picks up again with, with his prayer with that phrase again a second time in this passage of for this reason. And last week we covered Paul's situation and suffering. We, call, we covered Paul's stewardship in handling the mystery and we, and we covered Paul's service in proclaiming the mystery. So this morning, the content of Paul's prayer that we're going to cover in verses 14 down through the end of the chapter, chapter really are broken up into three main sections. These three main sections are going to be introduced with a Greek word in front of each one of these Statements And that Greek word is, is henna. And often in the study of Greek, we'll call this a henna statement. And it's translated that or literally translated so that. And we get the purpose behind this prayer as Paul continues to work through uh, this prayer to the Lord on behalf of the church at Ephesus. So in verse number 16 and through the beginning of verse 17, we'll see our leading indicator word of that And he goes on to say that he may grant you to be strengthened. And again, in verse 17, he says, so that Christ may dwell. We see our second major theme of this prayer introduced in the latter half of verse 17. Moving through verse 19, he says that you may have strength to comprehend and to know the love of Christ. And then we we see our final Hinna statement in the last half of verse 19, where he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so a prayer and a praise that will break down our three sections of our text this morning. So Paul is layering on to his previous prayer in chapter number one. There's many overlaps and connections. He'll dive into a deeper explanation in this prayer of of many different themes that are carried over through chapter one. But specifically, Paul is praying that his readers and hearers would be one strengthened by God's power to understand Christ's love, and three, be filled with God's fullness. This is Paul's heart in his prayer 
this morning. So the big idea of our text this morning is this, because God is abundantly able and is due all the glory, we should seek by his grace to manifest his power and love by living a full and spirit-filled life. That was a mouthful, so let me, let me say that one more time for us, okay? This is the summary statement. The big idea of our text is this, because God is abundantly able and is due all the glory, we should seek by his grace to manifest his power and love by living a full and spirit-filled life. So without further ado, let's dive into our text this morning. The first point that we're going to consider is this. Paul prays to the Father for his readers to be strengthened. Let's pick up a reading verse number 14 of Ephesians chapter number three. It says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So though Paul doesn't explicitly state here that he's actively entering into prayer, he certainly demonstrates a posture or a disposition of prayer in this section of Ephesians chapter number three. So before getting into the meat of our first henna statement or so that statement, I want us to focus on this. These opening statements of who is praying to who and why. So it opens up and says, for this reason in verse number 14, I bow my knees before who? The Father. He bows his knees before the Father. Paul is praying to the Father, and then he gives this descriptive statement concerning the Father in verse number 15. What does he say? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This, we see a unique term or a phrase used in this statement, and it's the word Family. As I was studying through this, it was surprising to me enough that this term family is only used two other times in the New Testament. Once in Luke and the other time in Acts, and it's a term of origin. So the origin from whom every family in heaven and on earth is from whom? It's from God the Father, right? He is the creator of all things. And so here, Paul is recognizing who he is praying to, and he layers in this emphatic statement about the greatness, the bigness, the power of God as what? As creator. He is laying the foundation for his readers and for his hearers to understand the weight of this prayer. That when we pray to the Father, we're not just throwing up a hope and a prayer to use our lingo. We're not just praying to some golden image or some dead God or some religious person. We're praying to God, the creator of all things, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega. So Paul is raising the stakes, if you will, in this prayer by focusing his reader's attention on who this prayer is to. It's to God the Father. So friends, that may seem like an elementary point in this prayer, but I don't think, I don't think it's um, a pointless activity for us to consider and remember God the Father as creator. 
and who he is, that he literally spoke all things into his existence. Before I get too excited about our next series, Genesis, uh, I want to make some comments about God as creator. Friends, Paul is speaking clearly and directly to what the divine nature of God. In this phrase here that Paul uses, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And this prayer being directed specifically to God the Father, this speaks to his eternality. You see, friends, in this world that we live in, we need to know God's word. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. We see this, this phrase from every family in heaven and on earth is named. What does it look like for you to know that God in a personal and intimate way? Friends, we live in an increasingly secular society, do we not? In a country that once was founded on God's word and his principles, continues to wax worse and worse. The moral decline of our culture is seen literally in every headline of every article, every newspaper, everything that we turn to. We find that the world is not getting better. Mankind is not getting better. We are getting what? Worse. And sin is becoming more and more real every single day. So what does it look like you? What does it look like for you to know this God in a personal and intimate way in an increasingly post-Christian society? Think about it. I read even an article this week about um, a young woman at UC Berkeley who is being, quite frankly, persecuted for her stance to, uh, on God's word and her relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, literally just horribly mocked and ridiculed because she's going to make a stand on what she Believes. I look at all these kids sitting here in this auditorium and, and parents, we have our work cut out for us and raising them up in the, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord as we, as arrows shoot them out into this world for His glory, they're going to be faced with challenges that we could have never even imagined that they would be dealing with. We live in a post-Christian Society, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to be able to defend our faith, not in a flurry of emotion, but with the simple truth of God's word because only God is eternal, only God is immutable or unchanging, and only God existed as a creator, which means all else in this world is the what? Created. He always was and is and will be. Why? Because he is, he's God. And friends, I want us to understand that. I want the reality that we live in a world that was created by this God. My life, my breath, my family, my children, all of creation around us are because of this God. And Paul is praying to that God. I want us to get the bigness and the greatness and the awe and the wonder of that reality. That although Paul is praying for this church at Ephesus, Paul's words ring true even in our life. That Paul desired these same things for future generations of believers that would come in the days ahead. And that's, that's us. And so Paul is praying to that God. And we, through Christ, have that opportunity to pray to that same God. And so before you might think that I'm making a bit too much of this simple phrase, I think we step into Paul's shoes for just one moment this morning. 
When Paul entered into this posture and disposition of prayer, it meant something. It meant something for Paul to realize the incredible gift and honor it truly is to come before the Father because of the, do you remember the word from last week? The what? Access that we've been given through who? Through Christ. We've been given access. We have access to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's all the nations of men. That's all the rulers, all the authorities, all the dominions, all the cosmic powers that have been mentioned in previous chapters and that will be mentioned in future chapters. Both good and fallen. Everything that is in existence is because God is creator. They all originate as created beings from God, period. No debate. It's God's word. And so, friends, I wonder, are we going to believe that truth? Are we going to believe that reality? Are we going to put a stake on, on that truth, no matter how popular it is? We see increasingly denominations and churches trying to twist the message of God as creator, trying to twist the message of a literal seven-day creation, trying to twist the message of who God really is so that we could try to make it more marketable or more acceptable to have a little bit of the world, a little bit of, God, of, of the world's philosophy and have a little bit of God. But friends, we unashamedly believe the truth of God's word. And I wonder, friends, if you are as well. Have you found yourself influenced in very simple and subtle ways with the philosophies of this world coming into existence? Do you believe that God is the creator of all things? Do you believe in a literal Genesis account that all things were created in heaven and earth by him? This is pivotal to our Christian faith. This is pivotal to our understanding of God's word. And this is pivotal to how we then will relate to this world that God has placed us. This is, a, this is a big deal for us to get. So Paul's first request in chapter number 3, verse number 14 and 15 is this. Paul's first request is that they be what? Strengthened. If you remember back to me again, the first section of chapter 3, we honed in on this verb, what? Made known that Dave talked about in our, in our song services. Mystery has been made known to Paul. And if you'll remember, we made note that this verb was in the passive voice, meaning Paul received this revelation by no efforts of his own. It was through the Spirit and by the Spirit that this mystery was made known. So also here, this verb to be strengthened is in the passive voice, meaning again that it is not something that I or you or these readers can do in and of themselves. This is not something they can do on their own, and this is absolutely 100% something that God must do on their behalf to be strengthened. Friends, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I'm feeling weak, when I'm beat down by my sin and by, the, by my flesh and by the world, have you ever found yourself try to just do better? Try to just do more, try to get busy with some good Christian activity to try to check a couple boxes, try to strengthen yourself and your own ability and your own might. Have you ever been there before? I have. And certainly at the end of the day, those attempts fall dreadfully short of being truly strengthened as Paul is praying for here in this passage for his readers. If you remember back 
with me to Ephesians chapter number one, verse number 19. Paul was praying that his readers would what? Know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Okay, so I teed up God as a creator for a purpose so that we could understand and know the quality and the quantity of the power and the greatness that is available to us to be strengthened on a daily basis. It is the same power that spoke all things into existence that can strengthen my life. Do we get that? That is unbelievable. So really, when you think of it that way, no matter what you are going through, no matter how difficult or how hard it may seem or really be, God is, He is able because He is God. And He wants to strengthen us by that great might and according to that quality and quantity of that power. So fast forward now to chapter number three. Paul again is carrying this theme of power and what that power should result in. For his readers and for us today, we should be strengthened with these realities that we can be in relationship with that God. So we jumped to the middle of verse 16 to get to the, to the core verb of our text for our first point. So we pass over this opening phrase of verse number 16. It says what? That according to the riches of his glory. Again, another beautiful descriptive phrase that Paul deploys here. I love that word according. This could literally be translated on the basis of, it is on the basis of the very character of God that he will what? Strengthen us. God can do nothing else but to strengthen and protect and care for and love for his people. It is his very character as our father to relate to us in that way. Do, do we get that? So to point a finger to God in blame, to shake a fist of, of, of anger at God, we, we fall short in remembering who God is, that He is a loving and gracious, and, he, and he's a, he is a good, good Father to us. And it's important for us to remember that reality. So it's on the basis of the very character that God will strengthen us. We go on and we see this word riches again. Right? We see this back in Paul's first prayer in chapter 1. Paul used the same term here in verse number 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Do you remember that? In chapter 1, riches. God has ample resources. They are in excess. They are overflowing in abundance. There's according to the riches of his glory. So God is, has ample resources overflowing in abundance. Paul qualifies the process of strengthening us and his readers. He qualifies that process of, of how God will complete this work. Right? We see three phrases in verse number 16. He says this, with power, this is the means by which God will complete this work of strengthening. We've already hit on that. The second one we see is what? Through his 
Through his what? His, his spirit, right? This is the agent that God will use to bring about this strengthening work. And then three, we see in your inner being. This is the location of the work of this strengthening that will happen on behalf of the believer. So what is the result of all this strengthening with power through his spirit and in your inner being? The result, verse number 17, that Christ may dwell in your what? Your hearts. That Christ may dwell in your hearts. We know that at the moment of salvation, we receive what at the moment of salvation? We receive the Holy Spirit. That's right. The Holy Spirit indwells us. At that moment, we have all of the spirit that we are going to get for the rest of our life. Do we understand that? We, we have all of the spirit that we're going to get this side of eternity. We don't need more of him. We certainly don't have less of him. We have all of the spirit that we're going to get at that moment of salvation. So what isn't Paul saying here? And what is Paul saying in this phrase that Christ may dwell in your hearts? Paul certainly is not advocating for or indicating that we can somehow lose the indwelling of the Spirit. Right? The Spirit of the Christ is always with us. The Holy Spirit has indwelled us at the point of salvation and we cannot lose that indwelling. We believe on the basis of Scripture, if saved, always saved, and at the moment the Holy Spirit comes into our life and He starts that sanctifying work through the Word of God to make us more like Jesus, excuse me, in our new man and less like the world in our flesh in the old man. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 24. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This work in our passage is demonstrated, demonstrated by Paul's use of the word dwell. Right? Do we see it there? See that, that verb dwell? The verb indicates what? A state of permanence rather than a state of temporary residence. So if Paul is not speaking to the potential to somehow lose the indwelling of the Spirit or that somehow we can receive more of this indwelling of the Spirit, what is there for us to learn about the indwelling of the Spirit this morning? It's this. I believe Paul is pointing us and his readers to develop a Holy Spirit awareness and consciousness about us. So again, at the point of salvation, we have all of the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is, has indwelled in us as believers in our hearts. The question is, are we actively, on a day-to-day -day basis, aware of that reality? Do we have that Holy Spirit consciousness about us as we are making choices, 
as we are responding to our children in a moment of correction, as we are responding to our spouse in a moment of disagreement, as we are responding to that overbearing boss in our workplace, are we conscious of this reality that the Spirit of God has indwelt us at the moment of salvation? So here Paul is urging his readers to live and to walk. We'll see that phrase used in future chapters, to live and to walk under the indwelling influence of the Spirit. We can't lose the Spirit. We can't get more of the Spirit. But certainly we can what? We can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. And ultimately we can suppress the influence of the Spirit in our life by how we live and how we submit to this working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So friends, Paul is praying for this church here at Ephesus to live day by day in the continual reality of the presence of Christ in their lives. Was that a good prayer that Paul prayed for this church? Yes. Certainly is. Do you think that church at Ephesus, you think they needed to hear that message to live day by day in the reality that the Spirit of Christ has indwelt them? Do you think they needed to hear that? Absolutely. But friends, can we not say this is equally a good prayer for us in our time, in our day, for us, for you, for me to be aware of? Well, back to our text. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Friends, we need to wake up to the reality of what the Spirit is doing in and through His church. Do we remember the first part of chapter 3? It is through the church that this mystery is made known. We have an active participation in this work that God is doing in this world, and He has chosen to do it through His church. The church is not four walls and a steeple. It's every man, woman, and child that knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior. And we are fitly joined together as a body, building each other up in love. And it is through that unity that the church is going to accomplish this work of putting on full display what it looks like to dwell, to have the Christ, the Spirit of Christ, dwell in our hearts through faith. So friends, we need to get into the game. We need to understand our identity in Christ. We need to be that minister of reconciliation, that 2 Corinthians, that Paul said in 2 Corinthians. We need to be that ambassador for Christ. We need to go and make disciples. This is what it looks like for Christ to dwell in our hearts. Paul goes on to say, through what? How does the Spirit of Christ dwell in our hearts? Through what? Through, through faith. Do you see those, those next two words there? Through faith. Just as we are saved by grace and of no works of our own, we are saved through what? Through faith. Faith saves and faith certainly allows us to be strengthened. 
The more active and present our faith is in a given moment, the more active and present the Spirit of Christ will be in that given moment. God never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's a, he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Draw nigh to him, and what? He will draw nigh to us. So friends, I wonder this moment, moment where are we at in our relationship with Christ? Is your faith in active participation with what God is doing in and around you? You see, friends, one is ta- attached to the other. They're proportionally influenced by the other. You feed your faith, what will grow? Your faith. You feed your flesh, what will grow? Your flesh. So it is through faith that the Spirit of Christ dwells in our hearts, and it's ultimately through faith that we can be strengthened. Do you believe this morning that God is able and willing and desirous to strengthen you through the Spirit of Christ in your inner being as you believe that that work will be true? So it's through faith. So Paul prays to the Father for his readers to be strengthened. Secondly, Paul prays to the Father for his readers to what? Know love. Paul prays to the Father for his readers to know love. They would know the love of ultimately God. Again, if you'll remember back with me one more time to chapter number one. In Paul's first prayer, we pointed out that this Knowledge is not just a simple academic endeavor of knowing some stuff about God. Right? Do you remember this? But rather, this word gnosko is, is more of this experiential word where he wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good and be blessed as you place your trust in Him. Psalm 34, 8 tells us. So this knowledge to know the love of God takes on this experiential tone. Paul desires for his readers to experience and understand the love of Christ. So before we dive into verse number 19, let's go back to the end of verse number 17 where Paul uses this phrase, that's you being rooted and grounded in love, right? Look at me, verse number 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that's you being rooted and grounded in love. Love. Here Paul contextualizes his prayer to his audience and deploys two very intentional words that would have connected closely to his readers. First, he prays that they would be what? Rooted. This would be an agricultural word. They would understand immediately what it looks like to have a healthy root system in their day. They would understand the importance of having soil and other means necessary to cultivate and allow the roots to grow deep and healthy. Paul would be aware of that. And so Paul uses this agricultural word. It would have struck a clear imagery into the minds and hearts of his readers. He uses the second term, grounded. This word grounded would be an architectural word. It would equally have made this same type of impact. It would have caused a sense of imagery of being agriculturally sound, or excuse me, architecturally sound and agriculturally rooted. Say that five times fast. Wow, that's a, that's, that's a mouthful, isn't it? 
So his readers and his desire and his prayer for them is that they would be agriculturally rooted, firm, and stable. They would be (laughs) architecturally, wow, grounded, solid, and safe. This is Paul's desire for them. And he gives this sense of imagery and illustration to help them understand what it's going to look like for them to experience the love of God and to know and to understand and to comprehend it. This is the result of that work. Rooted and grounded. Those are simple terms. They don't need a lot of explanation, but does that describe your understanding, your relationship with God? Are you rooted? Are you grounded in the love of God? Understanding, are you secure and confident? And the love of Christ and what he's done for you on your behalf, not only this side of eternity, but for all eternity? To cast your sins as far as the east is from the west? To make that relationship with God that once was broken because of my sin has now been what reconciled and been made whole and right? Are you confident? Are you secure in that work? Rooted and, and grounded in this love. So whose love is being mentioned and towards whom? We've talked about this vertical and the horizontal relationships through the first few chapters of Ephesians. And in this instance, it certainly is a prayer for the readers to know Christ's love towards them. This isn't about them necessarily relating to others, but this is Christ relating to to them, and Paul wants to un- them to understand, to know, and to comprehend, and to experience Christ's love towards them on an individual basis. Certainly, once that's properly understood and experienced, then and only then will God's people be able to go into the world and accurately love others in the church that know Christ and others outside the church who don't know Christ. So, Paul then, in our passage here, makes Two specific requests in this section. First, uh, let's, let's read it. End of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love, verse number 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you being filled with all the fullness of God. So he makes two specific requests in our second section of this prayer. He says, one, that they may have strength to comprehend. Comprehend what? The true beauty of the love of Christ, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Paul is attempting to level up their understanding of the love of Christ. So these dimensions that Paul deploys here in this prayer. These dimensions listed should help us understand the incredible immensity of Christ's incomparable and unparalleled love for his people, for them, also for us, right? Paul is, is, is attempting for them to understand Christ's love in a different way, for them to experience, for them to know Christ's love in this way. And he said, he uses this phrase, all the saints. All the saints would indicate that we should all be operating from this same understanding. 
There should be a common denominator in our lives, in our Christian life with how we live and how we interact with this world. It is what the common denominator is that we all understand in this incredible, unparalleled way, the love of Christ. And that should motivate us. That should change us. Ultimately, that will impact our relationships that we'll see through the remainder of the book of Ephesians. So this... No one is left out from all the saints. We should all be motivated to know more about this incredible love that Paul is putting in front and center of this section of his prayer. Secondly, Paul specifically prays for us to know what? The love that surpasses knowledge. To know the love that surpasses knowledge is phrased as the idea of comprehension. This side of eternity in our finite minds, we can never really and fully know the love of Christ toward us. We certainly know enough, right, to be saved. We certainly know enough to live for Him and His glory on this earth, but we never will be able to truly find the depths of the love of Christ in our human state until we stand before Him face to face. And He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. At that point, we'll truly be able to understand and know the love of Christ. But Paul is praying for them to know something that because of its nature is actually beyond grasping. It's the love of Christ. It is something that is eternal and we certainly are finite. And so there is a challenge here with us living in this reality on a day-to-day basis. So Paul isn't discouraging his readers from engaging in this effort to know the love of Christ. He is making it as big as he possibly can in his human expression of the love of Christ so that it can motivate his readers, his hearers, this church here at Ephesus, continue to meditate and to pursue and to abide in this love of Christ. He's challenging them to lean in that much more to the task of knowing and comprehending the love of Christ. So one, Paul prays to the Father for his readers to be strengthened. Secondly, Paul prays to the Father for his readers to know the love of Christ. And thirdly, Paul prays to the Father for his readers to be filled with the fullness of God. To be filled with the fullness of God. Let's look at the end of verse number 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's our final hint of statement. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This final phrase serves as somewhat of a a summary for the entire prayer. It is all building to the goal of being filled with the fullness of God. What does that phrase filled with the fullness of God really mean? I mean, it, it sounds good. And you certainly sounds like it's something that you'd want and that you should desire to be filled with the fullness of God. But what, is it, what does it mean? One commentator in describing this phrase summar, summarized it this way. He said, Paul, in, in, in the, the technical sense, is asking for his readers to be filled up to the fullness with the fullness of God to be filled up to the fullness of, with the fullness of God. Paul uses a similar phrase in chapter 4, verse number 13. So turn over a page maybe, if you're like my Bible, 
You got to turn over one page. Chapter 4, verse number 13, he says this, Until we attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to, to what? Mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of who? Of Christ. So here again, allowing Scripture to in, interpret Scripture, what is Paul saying for here for us to be filled with the fullness of God? Fullness properly understood should bring us to a point of understanding that we should continually be maturing and growing in our faith and our knowledge and our relationship with Christ. This concept will set the stage from Paul's practical exhortations to walk in a manner in chapter 4, verse number 1, and to walk in love in chapter 5, verse number 2. He's going to continue now to challenge his readers to progress in their maturity and their knowledge and their understanding and their comprehension of the love of Christ to be filled with the fullness of God. He's desiring for his readers and for his hearers to not just stay as, as babes in infancy in the relationship with Christ, but for them to be filled with the fullness of Christ, for them to understand who Christ is, what he did for them on their behalf, and that we should walk in the same way. To be filled with the fullness of God, to be filled with the fullness of Christ means that I will be progressing in my maturity, my understanding, my relationship with the Lord. So then Paul finishes this prayer with this beautiful statement of praise, giving testimony to the works of God. Let's read verses 21, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul breaks this statement of praise and doxology down into three clear sections. One, in verse number 20, he points his readers again to the object of this praise. Once again, he starts with God the Father and he ends his prayer with God the Father. Now to who? Him. Now to Him. That's God. The second section is End of verse number 20, going into the beginning of verse 21, Paul gives the content of his praise. He layers in a work that God wants to do on behalf of his people. He desires to use his church. It is through his church. It is in his church that God wants to put his ability and his works and his character on full display. And then the third section is this. Paul describes the duration of this praise or how long this praise in doxology should be given and ascribed unto the Lord. Now to him who is what? Able. Now unto him who is able. We, we know, I'm sure you've heard maybe other sermons on this just this standalone passage, but we know in the Greek this literally means what? Dynamite. He, has, he is able. He has power. He has ability. So this is no vain or fluffy exclamation that Paul is going to put out here on behalf of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And friends, just stop and pause there for a moment. Think about how little 
We really do ask of the Lord in our prayers for him to work in and through his church, to work in and through your life, to work in and through your family, in your community, in your workplace, in your city. How little we actually do that. Think how much more that we could layer into that effort of prayer. Think how much more we could engage in that work of going to the Lord, ascribing to him the power due unto his name. And think about how dedicated and disciplined you could be in that work of asking. And then think of this, that, that as disciplined as you could ever be, and as much as your words could ever describe of the work that God could do in and through our church, in your life, and in this world, God wants to do what? Abundantly more than that. Abundantly more. And friends, I don't know about you, but I want, I want to be a part of that. You want to be a part of that abundantly more of what God can do in and through your life, in and through this, this world of, of making his glory known through Christ and through his church? Absolutely. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. This, rem, this reminds us again of our place, our finite. We, we are beggars. We are, we are lumps of, 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 of clay in, in the hands of the potter being used for his glory, we need him to work in and through us. And he is able, according to the power at work within who? Us. Again, within us. This is according on the basis of the power that is at work within us. God desires for you and for me to be in active participation of the abundantly more than what we could ask or think. He doesn't want spectators. He doesn't want fans. He wants Christ followers who are off the bench, in the game, and ready to engage in that type of spirit-filled work. Friends, are you engaged in the fight? Are you in the battle? Are you in the game of life here? Are you sitting by watching others grow in their spiritual life? Are you, walk, are you watching others receive healing and blessing in their life through the Spirit of God? Because what? They're engaged, they're growing, they're maturing. When I say healing and blessing, I'm not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm talking about spiritual healing. I'm talking about getting rid of sin out of your life. I'm talking about relationships being restored. Is that a blessing? about loneliness being gone. I'm talking about purpose and mission in your life that you thought you didn't have. This is what God wants to do in and through his church. According to the power at work within us, that's you, that's me, that's all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We have that creation type of power at work within us that God wants to use in this world to, to do abundantly more than what we could ever ask or think. What's the result? What is the result of this? What's the duration of this praise? Verse 21, to him be glory in the church. The church will be on fire. The church will once again be relevant in our day when the people of God, his church, get serious about living this type of way. The church won't be mocked. 
The church won't be struck down because the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. He is building his church. And when his people start living and acting and relating in this type of way, there is power in his church, like Acts type of power, like New Testament church type of power. Do we believe that God is still working in and through his church, his bride? He has not forgotten his bride. He will not cast his bride away. He is a faithful husband. And so, friends, this is the work that God wants to do in and through us. So glory, his glory is put on full display in his church and in Christ Jesus. I mentioned John 17 last week, and certainly I want to mention it one more time. Let's turn there. John 17 as we close. Verse 20 of John chapter number 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world, what, may believe that you have sent me. That the world may believe that you have sent me. Friends, the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus, the glory of Jesus Christ is at stake as we understand our role in our active participation in this work. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Paul contends that this doxology, that this praise, that this expression of adoration, this work of extolling unto Christ what is due to his name, that this shouldn't just happen then in the church of Ephesus, this shouldn't just happen in our church today, but it should be a work of Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, being put on full display and being praised now and for all eternity. And friends, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to being on that side of eternity where all we can do is say, holy, holy, holy. And singing that praise over and over and over again for all eternity. We have an opportunity to praise Christ in that way. But friends, why not start that work now? Why not live in that spirit of, of worship now and in today as we learn and live how to operate as the church, as God designed the church. And friends, we have an opportunity to consider this morning a pray, a, excuse me, a prayer and a praise. Paul prayed some incredible things for this church. And I wonder, are we living these things out? Are we seeing these, these desires that Paul had for this church here? Are we seeing those come alive in our spiritual walk, in our relationship with the Lord? I certainly Hope so. It's our prayer this morning. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you are God. That you sent Jesus Christ to shed his blood. Went to a tomb and defeated sin, death, and hell. Rose again on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. That that is real. That that is true. We can place our complete trust and faith in that work. Father, I pray that this morning that we would get the love of Christ. Father, your love towards us through Christ. That just as that 
that one sheep wanders off from the flock and uh, you run after it. You bring it back into the fold. And so, Father, I thank you that you did that for me. I pray that this morning we would understand in new and fresh ways the, the height, the depth, just the complete measure, the breadth and width of, of your love towards us. Although we can never really understand that completely in its totality, we can, we can give our best effort by your grace and by your spirit to understand truly how you loved us. That we would receive that love. And that ultimately, Father, we would be willing to give that love as ministers of reconciliation. So, Father, I pray that this prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus would not just be an academic endeavor, but we would internalize these prayers in our own spiritual walk. As you've given us your inspired and errant word, I pray that it would do a work for your glory and that your church, this church, Liberty Hills Bible Church, and other gospel preaching churches, not only in our community, but across the world, that we would be that New Testament church that puts your glory on full display now. And certainly we look forward to doing that for all eternity. Father, we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.